All right. As everybody's settling in, I want to welcome you, one, to the first of four weeks of the series, uh, the title of which is on the front cover of the notes that are being distributed and also on the screen behind me, Praying With Your Eyes Open. So today and the following three weeks, we'll be looking at this important topic of what God says about prayer and its role in our lives. Before we get into the subject, let me uh, make some announcements. One is, this afternoon is our quarterly family meeting. That's our quarterly congregational meeting where we go over the last quarter financial report, so in this case, the third quarter. And But this being uh, the November meeting, and in preparation for the new year, we also present a proposed budget for 2012. So we'll go over that and we'll ask the congregation's approval for, for both of those. And then the bulk of the meeting will be devoted to just information about our pursuit of a ministry center in Trenton, uh, the Taylor Elementary School there that we've contracted to purchase. But there are a lot of questions that need to be answered over the next 90 days or so. So we don't have all of those answers, and in fact, don't have many of those answers yet, but we at least know the questions. And uh, we can go over those with you, tell you how we came upon it, and uh, answer uh, questions that you have as best we can. So for those of you that are members, being at our family meetings is uh, something that we encourage you to do so that you can know what's going on. I use those venues uh, in an hour, hour and a half. Most of it is almost always devoted to me just saying everything I know about our church and where we are and where we want to go and what's coming up and all of that. So if you don't go to those, you do miss some stuff. Uh, it's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not mad or anything. Uh, and But if you want to know the information, a lot of times it's, it's disseminated there. And uh, sometimes folks say, I didn't know we were doing that, whatever that is. And a lot of times it's because it's discussed in a family meeting or at our servant seminars that we do at the beginning of the year. Those things are offered as ways for us to talk about what we're doing, where we are, and where we're going. And we try to offer uh, a good bit of information, but you have to be there to get it. So if uh, you're interested, particularly in the ministry center stuff, you might want to come this afternoon, 2.30, First Baptist of Gibraltar uh, is where we'll, we'll be meeting. We won't have our Sunday evening home groups, our community groups, because we're having the afternoon uh, family meeting. This Wednesday, we have our full complement of midweek services, like every Wednesday, except when it's the day before Thanksgiving. So we didn't meet last week, but we'll resume this week, 7 o'clock, at Patrick Henry Middle School, uh, children, nursery, teens, adults. Uh, we have stuff that's listed in your program for all, all ages. And then, ladies, the Christmas Advent uh, is going to be a week from Tuesday, Tuesday the 6th at uh, 6.30 at Huron Baptist in Flat Rock. Did you get, Kim LaChapelle, did you get a partner? Did you get a partner? No partner yet? So Kim LaChapelle is still looking for a lady to partner with her at her table. You already have eight guests or something for your table, but just somebody to help her do the decorating for her table. So if you, ladies don't have a partner, if you're not hosting a table and decorating, you want to help, see, uh, see Kim about that. But uh, if you're going... Uh, even if you're not hosting a table, you're just planning on attending, and and if you're going to bring some folks, uh, we need to know both of those, that you're coming and you're going to bring two or three or ten, ten people. And there is a registration, uh, registration for that at the Registration Resource Center. So before you leave today, see Sandra, who's sitting over there by the window, 
and let her know that you're coming and whoever else you might be bringing. Having that information today would be extremely helpful, okay? So I make these announcements at the beginning, and then we forget them by the time we get to the end. So tie a string around your finger or something so you'll remember before you leave. Okay, ladies? All right. Why a series on prayer? Well, a number of reasons, but let me give you a couple. One is because I want to be, personally, I want to be a praying pastor. And also, I want our church to be a praying church. So at the beginning of this year, I said at our servant seminars, if you were there, I laid out some of our objectives for 2011 one of which was know what we're doing with regard to a ministry center. So we've been pursuing that. But another one was for us to uh, have a time for an emphasis upon what the Bible says about prayer. Because I want us as a church to move forward on our knees so that as God continues, I should say, to accomplish things in us and through us, that he receives the glory and the honor for that in answer to the prayers of his people. So I want to be a praying pastor, and I want us to be a praying church. Now, first, with regard to myself, uh, I will admit to you that prayer is, of course, something that I need desperately, but it also something that is the weakest point in my spiritual life. And I'll talk about why in a minute. But it is. But I need it desperately, and our church needs it desperately. Because the activity that I'm engaged in and that we collectively as God's church are engaged in is what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. And in the context, in fact, of Ephesians chapter 6, which we'll see in a year, we just started Ephesians 5, but in the context of describing the armor of God with which we go into the spiritual battle, we're told to, to pray in the Spirit at all times. And so prayer is an essential weapon in the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. And those of us who lead are, by definition, on the front lines of that. And so it follows that Satan will attack. So I need the prayer for myself, for my ministry, and, and for our church. So I want to be a praying pastor. And I feel like, as a pastor of a church, much like a character in your Old Testament, Jehoshaphat, who in, I'm going to read for you in just a moment, Second Chronicles chapter 20. And Jerusalem was ready for attack from a couple of peoples, the Moabites and the Ammonites. They were fierce and they were large and scary. And Jehoshaphat and uh, the Israelites were afraid. And so Jehoshaphat assembled uh, God's people. And he stood before them and he gives this eloquent prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 20. But he ends the prayer this way in verse 12. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. 
We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That is a good, accurate, and humble prayer. We don't have the power. I don't have the power. More times than I would like to admit, I don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. So I need to be a praying pastor. And then I'll talk about our church being a praying church. Now, for myself, you lead spiritual warfare. There's then attack of different types. You need the weapons, all the weapons God gives, including, including prayer. And I don't often know what to do. But I don't like to admit that. I like to come off like I know what I'm doing. And so I tell my wife, you don't tell people what you know. Which is that I'm clueless. But here I am admitting it before God and these witnesses. And you already knew that as well. Now, the struggle is this. That you have to use the competencies and the gifts and the abilities that God has given you to further his work. That's why he gave them. And so we all are gifted, and God has given me my gifts, and I have to use them to advance his work. But the difficulty is you can easily become dependent upon those rather than dependent upon God. And that's what often happens with me. Now, I told you I would tell you why this is a big struggle, and here's, here's one of the reasons. I'll give you the proximate case, cause, and then I'll give you the real cause. The proximate cause is that I have a disdain for something called mysticism. I've had it for a long time. I still have it. It's a good disdain. It's a good thing not to like mysticism. Now, what is it? Well, it has a lot of forms. But in the average Christian life, it takes the form of let go and let God. Or a sort of passive approach. It'll just happen. Things will just fall into place. Pray about it, and it'll just fall into place. So over the years, I have heard a misguided mysticism used to excuse activity on behalf, on behalf of God's mission. Using our gifts actively rather than passively waiting for something to happen. So I'm not passive. And it's good not to be passive. But because I have this disdain for mysticism, and because I'm an activist when it comes to the Lord's work, I can easily move ahead and go in my own strength rather than in the strength that only God can provide and for which I and we need to humbly ask on a regular basis. So that's the proximate cause because I've just seen it done wrong. But the real cause is pride, right? I mean, where would I possibly get the idea that I could move an inch without the power of God? And yet the idea that I can and then, oh yeah, I should pray about that is an expression of pride. And so it's a struggle. Prayer is a struggle for me. In fact, it's the biggest struggle in my own Christian walk. 
So why a series on prayer? I need it. I want to be a praying pastor. But I want us to be a praying church. I want us to move forward. I want us to move forward and advance the Lord's mission. But I want us to do that on our knees. So that, as I said earlier, that God gets the glory for what's accomplished. Now you see that referenced in a passage in John chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 15, where Jesus is saying, you remember, I am the the vine and you are the branches. Remember in verse 5 of John 15, he says, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Right? But then you come to verses 7 and 8 of John 15. And Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now those two verses are broken up as verses, as I pointed out in our first hour today. When your Bible was originally written, no chapter and verse divisions. And if you look at the first phrase, or just listen to the first phrase of verse 8, which says, this is to my Father's glory. What is to my Father's glory? Is it what follows, that you bear much fruit? Or is it what precedes, that you ask? And the truth is, it's right in the middle of both of these things. It is to my Father's glory that, one, you ask. And then it is to his glory, my Father's glory, that when he gives and you bear much fruit in the mission that I've called you to, he is glorified in that. He is glorified both in the asking and in the giving. And we, therefore, if we are a people and a church who want to bring glory to God, we must, therefore, be a praying church. So take a look at the first page in the notes that you were given. The course description. And I say there at the top, prayer is a struggle for all of us. In any group of Christians, if asked what area of their spiritual lives they'd most like to improve, the answer is almost always prayer. Now, I know that anecdotally from my own ministry, but I also heard a a conference speaker say that several years ago. And here's a guy who does conferences and seminars on prayer. And he goes around the country and he says, when he goes to churches and he goes to these conferences, he asks people, what's the weakest point in your spiritual walk? And number one always is prayer. So probably this group is not an exception. And I know I'm not an exception to that. There are a number of reasons for that that difficulty. Here are just a, a few that I have bulleted for you. We may have an incorrect view of the purpose of a prayer. We view it as a means to get things for ourselves. It's a very common misconception about what prayer is. I go to God and I ask for my stuff. James chapter 4 says something about that. James says, very often we have not because we ask not, but very often when we ask, 
we ask amiss because we want to consume it upon our own selfish pleasures, our own selfish desires. And so God is not going to honor that. When God doesn't respond to that, then we think prayer doesn't work. But it's not that prayer doesn't work. It's that we're not working prayer properly. So we might have an incorrect view of the purpose of prayer. Or we might have a deficient view of God. One author has said that every misconception about prayer, I should say is, first, a misconception about God. I'm going to, if we get to it next week, give you some more paper for your notebook on the Lord's sample prayer. But for now, before Jesus gives the sample prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and tells us how to pray, he first says here is how not to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, he gives a number of ways you're not supposed to pray. And all of those are based, those incorrect ways of praying, are all based on a misconception about God. And we'll see that probably next week. So we might have a deficient view of God when we pray. We might have, thirdly, an incomplete understanding of ourselves. How we understand ourselves in relation to the God we approach in prayer will affect how we talk to him. And here's what I mean by that. We will not be inclined to come to God in regular and intimate prayer if we do not see ourselves in relation to the Father as the Bible describes us. If we do not understand ourselves to be His beloved children, then we will forego this privilege of prayer. We'll be afraid to come to Him. Because we know we've messed up. Right? So if I don't have a proper view of myself in relation to God, I may well forego praying because I know what a crumb I am. And so unless I have a good understanding of the fact that God beckons me to come, knowing full well who I am and my sin and my struggle, and pleading the blood of Jesus who intercedes for me as we're going to see today, unless I know that, I may well, and I believe many often do, forego prayer because of that. Or, we may have insufficient habits for the work of prayer. According to the Bible, prayer is hard work. And it requires discipline that most of us need to develop. Now, if we're engaged in spiritual warfare, and if it is true that prayer is one of the chief weapons in that warfare, does it not follow that prayer might be difficult. And Colossians chapter 3 uses a word that speaks of that difficulty. Let me uh, read it for you. Colossians 3 and verse 12. Or excuse me, 4 and verse 12. In speaking of one of his fellow workers, Paul who wrote this is writing about a fellow named Epaphras. That's the way you pronounce that, not Epaphras. But anyway, Epaphras. I've got a book on how you pronounce these things. <laughs> anyway, Epaphras. And it says this of him, Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always, and here's what it says, wrestling in prayer for you. Epaphras is wrestling in prayer. Doing the hard work, arduous work, of praying for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, 
mature and fully assured. The Bible uses those those kinds of wartime, fighting images as it relates to this issue of prayer. And so it is hard work, and most of us, if we're honest, have not developed the discipline to engage in it regularly. So I say here, though we might be dissatisfied, and probably most of us are, with our prayer lives, genuine children of God still desire to communicate with Him regularly and effectively. So I trust that that's resonating with you right now. Yes, Lord. I do want to pray. I do want to commune with you. I do want to regularly engage in the, in the work, the, the blessed work of prayer as your child. And so teach me in these coming weeks. And I say we need not live in defeat and guilt because God has spoken in Scripture, inviting us to pray to Him and instructing us on how to do that. So this brief series, we're going to seek to remove misconceptions about God, ourselves, and prayer so that we approach the Lord regularly and confidently and expectantly. Let's learn together how to pray with our eyes open. I have some books on prayer here that I recommend for you the bottom of the page. And every time you have a list of books, one, you can't afford to buy all the books and you don't have the time to read all the books on the list, most of us. So I try to tell you the one or two that if you're going to buy one, get this one. And in the middle there, Brian Chappell's Praying Backwards is an extremely helpful and readable book. And in fact, I'm stealing a bunch of stuff from him in, in this material because it's that good. So Brian Chapel, I'd encourage you to get that. Now, all of them on here are very helpful, but if you're only going to get one, <clears throat> then I'd encourage you to get that one, okay? All right, take a look then at the first page of our first session. Starting our prayers in Jesus' name. And that comes from Chapel. I've got the footnote there. You see the name of his book is Praying Backwards. And the whole book, he goes through what it means to approach God in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name. And what we do out of tradition and out of habit, what I do, is at the end of our prayers, we pray and then we say, in Jesus' name, amen. You do that long enough without thinking about what those words mean, and it becomes something like Roger Wilco over and out, signing off, right? Okay, I'm done, your turn, or, or whatever. But those are actually profound words in Jesus' name. When, when we say amen, the word amen, if it's said in church, when we say all God's people said amen, amen in Greek means truly, or true. When you see in the King James Version and it says verily, verily, the Latin word veritas means truth. Or if someone has veracity, they're being truthful. Okay, anyway. So verily, verily is really, and that's the Greek word amen, verily. In the NIV it says truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. So when we say amen, or all God's people said amen, then we are saying it is true. I agree with that. And so now I'm coming in the, in the name of Jesus. And I've attempted to give a prayer that is true to what God has said and God's character. 
And it's on that basis now that I'm coming to you. In Jesus' name. And so in these next few pages, we want to look at what it means to come to God in the name of Jesus. And what Brian Chappell is suggesting is whether you put the phrase at the beginning or at the end or whether you explicitly say, in Jesus' name at all, you don't have to actually say the phrase. Whether you say it at all, beginning, end, we need to come from the very moment that we pray, coming in the name of Jesus and all that that means. Now, what does all of that mean? Page two. Most of us have been taught to end our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. This is good and understandable. Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring the glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Though Jesus commands us to pray in his name, the reason we do so is not simply to make sure we get the formula right. Our prayers are not more powerful because we chant our Savior's name like a magic, a magic spell. And so as I said, it, there's nothing in Scripture that requires you actually say the words. But understanding what it means and coming with an attitude of approaching God in the name of Jesus is exactly what is required. So what does that mean? The merit of Jesus' name, middle of page 2. Echoing behind Christ's instruction to use his name is the understanding that he makes it possible for us to approach God. When we pray in Jesus' name, we confess that we're not coming to God or asking for his blessing on the basis of our own merit. Have you ever considered that? That when I come in the name of Jesus, I am saying, Father, I'm not approaching you because I have any right. But I am approaching you only because... I am united to the one who has every right, the Lord Jesus. And so now in the name of Jesus, or to put it in terms that most of us can understand, if I'm going into a party or some gathering where I haven't been invited, I don't know anybody, I'm, it may seem like I don't belong here, what might I say when I'm going through the door? I'm with, I'm with him. And the truth is, when we say in Jesus' name, we're really saying, I'm with him. He belongs. He has access because he is God the Son. And I am now able to have access only because of my connection with God the Son. Praying in Jesus' name is automatically then a confession of our unworthiness and a proclamation of his worthiness. By including the name of Jesus in our prayers, we're acknowledging that he paid the debt for our sins on the cross. We're acknowledging that he provides us union with him so that we're now robed in his righteousness and pronounced by the Heavenly Father to be as precious to him as his own son. And so as I think about it now, I can approach God and I can actually say the words, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you. I come to you not with my own merit, not because anything that I can bring to you, but because he has brought everything by giving himself up on the cross. And as a result of that, I now have access to the Father that I otherwise would not have. 
So the merit of Jesus' name is that His merit, His infinite merit, His righteousness is given to me so that as a sinner I can now approach God. I'm now given a new position before God. Not as a sinner outlawed from His presence, but as a child ushered into His presence because of Jesus. That's the merit of Jesus' name. And then there's the appeal of Jesus' name. Not only does Christ give his holy status so that we can approach a holy God, but the Bible teaches he intercedes for us. As our resurrected Lord, he now sits at the right hand of the Father to petition the Father for our good. Notice these verses. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. First John 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so I come and I appeal to the Father that I'm coming on in Jesus' name, the one who is alive by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, and the Bible teaches, is regularly ever interceding on behalf of, of his children. So I have the position because I'm united to Jesus. And now I have this, this access in which he is interceding on my behalf, talking to the Father on my behalf. I can come to Jesus, and Jesus goes to the Father for me. Middle of page 3, Jesus so loves us that he uses the privileges, now hear this, of his exalted position and the affection of his heavenly Father to ask the best for those who pray in his name. And because Jesus speaks for us, the Father who loves him treats us with, the affection, out of, with affection out of love for his own child. And so it's like we're paupers, and he's the prince. But because the, the prince goes to the Father on behalf of we paupers, we have this regular access, the regular access that he has to the Father. Not only does Christ's intercession grant us spiritual paupers the ability to have our appeals lovingly heard by the Father, Jesus' continuing work grants us direct access to the Father. Now, here's what we're saying. So I can pray to Jesus, and Jesus prays for me. I can pray to the Father, I can pray to Jesus, and Jesus is interceding. But I can also have direct access to the Father as well. Here's why. By his death, resurrection, and intercession, Christ Jesus enables us to approach our God and petition him as though we were the royal prince he is. When we approach God in Jesus' name, we have his own status as a child of the king. Christ continues to plead not only for our desires, but also for our souls. He asks God to forgive our present sins, apply his own righteousness to our account, and the result is that, though we're fallen creatures, before God we have the holy status of Jesus himself. So I come in Jesus' name, on his merits, He's making a continual appeal on our behalf before the Father, interceding for us. It gives us access through Jesus and direct access to the Father. 
And what happens? Well, here's the power of Jesus' name. Verse 4, or page 4. With this access to the Father comes the privilege of praying with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to make the name of Jesus known and advance His kingdom. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're appealing to the Holy Spirit, now hear this, to conform our prayers to Christ's purposes. The Spirit has no more pressing business than advancing the name of Jesus. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we're summoning the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish His purposes. Any prayer that's truly offered in Jesus' name automatically engages the primary interest of the third person of the Trinity who was and remains the power that moves the world and everything in it. By engaging the Spirit through the use of Jesus' name, we're also acknowledging, now get this, the limits of our own wisdom. The Spirit of God is infinitely wise. He knows what our prayer should be. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that though we may not understand how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes to bring our prayers, quote, in accordance with God's will. By praying in Jesus' name, we engage the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and the result is the next verse, that all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Now, have you ever made that connection? Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Other than John 3.16, it may be the most oft-quoted verse in, in the Bible. And well, it should be. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But it's and we know. There's a connection between verse 28 and what precedes it. And what precedes it, verses 26 and 27, that are quoted there. That the Spirit intercedes for us because we don't know how to pray. So when I come in Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit, whose work it is to make the fame of Jesus known, through the accomplishment of the work of Jesus in His world, intercedes to take what I'm praying and make it what it should be. And so when I come in the name of Jesus, I'm in effect saying, I really don't know what should happen. I know what I want to happen. I know from my limited vantage point what it looks like should happen. But Lord, you have the ultimate vantage point. And so I'm coming in the name of Jesus, humbly admitting that your wisdom is greater than mine. And I need a translation of my prayer into the will of the God who sees everything. And the Holy Spirit does that when we come in the name of Jesus. And so I can confidently pray, knowing that even the stupid stuff I'm asking for, if asked for in the name of Jesus to, as we're going to see, advance his purposes, but even if what I'm asking for isn't the best way to advance it, God knows what the best way to advance it is. And the Holy Spirit will translate that prayer accordingly and then work all things out together for good. So what's the purpose of using the name of God, using the name of Jesus? We have it throughout Scripture, and those first couple paragraphs at midway on page 4 talk about the various ways in which people like Abraham and David went forward in the name of the Lord, invoking the authority of the Lord, identifying with the Lord by 
proclaiming his name as they went. But here's what the summary of that is at the bottom of page four. To do anything in the Lord's name means to do it for his purposes. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're petitioning God to bring glory to Jesus and we're asking for his will to be done in everything so that he will be honored above all. Prayers in Jesus' name are enveloped with concern that he be represented and blessed and glorified. By appealing to Jesus' name, we surrender our prayers to his purposes. It means while we should present many kinds of petitions to God, a prayer offered in Jesus' name ultimately requests his desires. Now, you've got to read that slowly. I can present many petitions to God. But ultimately, if I'm coming to God in the name of Jesus, what I'm really concerned about is his desires and that my desires be his desires. So the purpose of Jesus' name, God's name, is to align our purposes with his purposes. And so what's the conclusion of all of that? Page 5. Think about this. If we were to pray backwards literally, then, starting with in Jesus' name, it might help identify how childish our prayers are so often. Think about praying this. In Jesus' name, give me a new car. In Jesus' name, lower my taxes. I mean, having the audacity to actually speak Jesus' name for our selfish day, in Jesus' name, make my stock go up in value. Now, the only people who have that audacity are the TV preachers. Right? This is what they actually do. They actually demand of God in the name of Jesus that he do what they want. In the name of Jesus, help me get out of this marriage. In the name of Jesus, make my church get really big. When we become the primary focus of our prayers and our earthly satisfaction is our greatest concern, then ending our prayer with Jesus' name is superfluous at best and possibly little more than superstition. When we pray backwards, we're faced with the fact that Jesus' desires should be honored preeminently and ultimately because he who bought us at the price of his own precious blood should have his purposes honored most highly. Praying backwards, that is starting with Jesus' name. Whether you do it explicitly or attitudinally, praying backwards helps clarify the priorities of our prayers so that we can distinguish childish from mature position, petitions. Children pray this way. Lord, give me what I want. But the mature pray, Lord, conform me to what you want. Children pray for the fulfillment of their desires. The mature pray for the fulfillment of the Savior's purposes. Children pray for the things they can see. The mature pray that God will be seen. Children pray, my will be done. The mature say, thy will be done. The principles of praying backwards do not require us to say the words in the name of Jesus prior to our petitions. There's nothing wrong with such a practice, it's, but it's not a magic formula, either at the beginning or at the end. Praying backwards is an attitude of the heart. It means we back away from making ourselves, our wishes, and our wants the primary concerns of prayer. We always put the purposes of Jesus first. 
We echo in heart, if not in actual words, the attitude of the psalmist who prayed, Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. The place we have to start if we are going to pray with our eyes open is to think about this phrase that we use so often, in Jesus' name. What does it mean? Well, it means a boatload, as you can tell. It means that I have access to God only because of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that the Lord Jesus is interceding for me as I come to God through His my identification with, with Him. It means that the Holy Spirit is invoked to translate my prayers into what they should be from His vantage point as the omniscient God to carry out His will in His, in his world. It means that I care ultimately about His honor and glory and I want to align my purposes with that. Now, if we start there, now we can move forward with expectant and persistent prayer before our God. And that's what we want to look at in the coming weeks, all right? Let's pray together in Jesus' name. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And all that it represents. The name of Jesus represents the authority that Jesus has as God. The name of Jesus, we acknowledge and we believe, represents the perfect life that Jesus lived. He lived the life that I should have lived, that we should have lived. And it represents the perfect sacrifice that he gave on our behalf to die for our sins. Because of that, Father, we have access to you. We come to you through the merits and through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of any good that we have. We have none to present to you. We have nothing to recommend ourselves to you. But we come to you through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit that you take our feeble perspective, our limited, so limited perspective, and you take our petitions and our requests, and you translate the, those into a request that best carries out the will of God for our good and His glory. And we acknowledge in coming in the name of Jesus that we don't have that wisdom, that I cannot tell you what to do. I should never deign to tell you what to do because I don't know what is best. And so, Lord, I ask. I ask for things for myself, and I ask for things for my family, and I ask for things for our church. But I recognize that you know what is best. And so take my feeble petitions and plug them into the will of God, that you are, your will that you're carrying out in your world to bring you glory and produce the good of your people. Lord, help me to align my purposes with yours. Help me to grow in you so that I can see what you are accomplishing in me and through me and in those around me and in your world and how we fit into that. I want to align myself with your purposes so that I can gratefully come to you in the midst of trial and give thanks because your purposes are now my purposes. And not resentfully and not seeking to escape first and foremost, but to learn, to learn of you and to become like Jesus. 
Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus and all that that represents. And because of that and because of that alone, we expect that you are going to honor our prayers. You're going to honor them as you see best. And that is best. And so, Lord, we ask you to go with us now this week. And we ask you to grant us safety. But we do it in the name of Jesus. Knowing that our safety may not be best this week. And if you choose otherwise, we know it is best. Translate our prayer, Holy Spirit, into what it should be. Help us, Lord, this week to put into practice what we have seen today. Praying in the name of Jesus. Coming to you on the merits of Jesus. Making our requests through the purposes of Jesus. And then help us to be able to be back next Lord's Day. To worship you and to learn of you. And how to pray and make most effective use of this arsenal in the armor of God in the spiritual warfare to which you've called us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.